0: What he's trying to say is Journal Club is a contact sport, for of <laughs>
1: It's rocking, man.
0: Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NEFJC Journal Club's. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, kidney boy on Twitter. Tonight we have four members of the Filtrate plus two special guests. Dr. Kathleen Tuttle is a professor of medicine at the University of Washington. Catherine, please introduce yourself.
1: Well, hello everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you for this episode of Freely Filtered. I am also the executive director for research at Providence Healthcare, and I am a nephrologist and an endocrinologist who has studied diabetic kidney disease for uh, over three decades now, and it's an exciting time to finally have some breakthroughs that are gonna make a difference for patients.
0: You did two fellowships? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And our second guest is Dr. Ian DeBoer. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Washington and associate director of the Kidney Research Institute. Ian, please introduce yourself.
2: Sure. My name's Ian DeBoer. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington, and worked with Kathy and others, a really fabulous team on these KDIGO guidelines.
0: And the filtrate. Samira?
3: Hi, everyone. My name is Samira Farouk. I'm a transplant hospital at Mount Sinai in New York City. I tweet at SS Farouk. Matt.
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. Big fan of the rene and angiotensin system and now a tried and true Flozenator.
0: <laughs> oh, my god. And Jenny.
5: My name is Jenny Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lynn.
0: I'm not sure how it happened. But we uh, forgot to introduce Swapnil, who was also part of this podcast. The treatment of diabetic kidney disease advanced a lot in the 90s and the turn of the century with the recognition of the importance of albuminuria, the initiation of tight glycemic control, and the development and recognition of the importance of RAS inhibition. But following these advances... The next two decades were more remarkable for failures rather than successes. We went through the emotional roller coaster of bardoxalone, the it should work but it doesn't tribulations of ACE ARB combinations, and add direct renin inhibitors to that list. We had endothelial antagonists show promise but at the expense of adverse events and volume overload. And even the lessons of the 90s came back to bite us when we went too far, with both blood pressure and glycemic control backfiring when we pushed them to the extreme. But in the last few years, we've reached a new hope with a number of new drugs being successful at pushing back the inevitable progression of CKD and lowering cardiovascular mortality in our patients. The puzzle that could not be cracked is finally yielding clues and it feels like we are making progress. SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 agonist, and as of last week, finerenone are rewriting the script on diabetic kidney disease. And into this Cambian explosion of treatment options, KDigo has published the first ever clinical practice guidelines on the management of diabetic kidney disease. When we set up NEFJC, we were very specific about the scope of what we would cover. While journal clubs usually only cover original research, we recognize that our field is often moved by manuscripts that are not original articles. A perfect example of this was the Viewpoint article in JAMA in August of 2019 on the use of race in estimating GFR viewpoints are normally not discussed in journal clubs, but it was a document that represented a sentiment that is changing nephrology, and we are proud to showcase it at NFJC. Clinical practice guidelines are also documents that change the practice of nephrology, and we are excited to get an opportunity to kick the tires on the newest KDGO guideline tonight. The guideline is divided into five chapters, and we are going to go over all five in detail, but first we want to spend some time discussing how this remarkable document was assembled. So these questions are probably primarily going to be for Catherine. So when did you get involved in the creation of of these clinical practice guidelines?
1: Well, to be honest with you, the history of the clinical practice guidelines in diabetes and CKD goes back to the National Kidney Foundation in KDOKI, And actually, Rob Nelson and I chaired the first guideline committee uh, that issued the first guideline on diabetes and CKD in 2007, which was before the KDigo era. And in fact, that was the first set of guidelines that basically outlined exactly what you had said in terms of diagnosis, as well as treatment of diabetic kidney disease and the specific recommendation to use a renin angiotensin system inhibitor, specifically an ACE inhibitor or an ARB for diabetic kidney disease. We also recommended the screening frequency uh, at least uh, annually in all patients with type two diabetes with both albuminary and GFR. That was the first guideline that recommended annual GFR screening. And then uh, in patients with type one diabetes annually after five years of diabetes. And so that was actually the, if you will, the, the, the foundation uh, that, that really laid out what at that time was the best evidence for diagnosis and treatment That guideline was updated in 2012 after the intensive glycemic control studies came out that you alluded to, as well as intensive blood pressure control in Accord that showed no benefit and in fact harms from tighter glycemic control and tighter blood pressure control, especially in the subset with CKD. And in fact, in Accord, there was actually a higher all-cause mortality in the group with CKD who were on intensive therapy suggesting that a little is good, but more is not always better. So then, as KDGO grew up to be, if you will, the international guideline-forming organization, and KDOKI essentially sunsetted other than to comment on guidelines such as KDGO, that work moved. And really, as you said, Joel, until a year ago, there wasn't much to add to the work that we had done in 2007 as the data began to emerge, certainly for SGLT2 inhibitors that we're euphemistically calling "flosins," as well as the GLP-1 receptor agonist data that came out of the cardiovascular outcome trials, it was clear that uh, we had, if you will, in a way stumbled on new kidney protective medicines. So KDigo then formed a committee to Write a new guideline and primarily focuses on treatment. There have been no updates regarding uh, diagnosis or screening. What we published in 2007 still stands.
5: So,
0: what what about the ADA? Do they have any CKD? focus in the the American Diabetic Association guidelines?
1: They publish the ADA standards of care every year. And there is a section on what used to be called nephropathy. And actually when we did KDOKI, we worked with them to change the terminology to diabetic kidney disease. And their guidelines are updated annually, which is fabulous uh, because they're much more real time than our kidney disease guidelines have been. And in fact, they even have a living guidelines such that when Credence came out, for example, they updated that guideline within two months uh, to recommend SGLT2 inhibitors for diabetes diabetic kidney disease. So again, in the or- origin group of NKF kdoki we had representatives from ADA and American Heart because American Heart Association also issues scientific statements and sometimes guidelines jointly with ACC. And clearly, as we'll probably explore a bit later, there's a lot of overlap between cardiac protection and kidney protection. And the truth is they're the same patients.
0: Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there, but first thing I, I do want you to go through. So we talk about diabetic kidney disease, but when I I was a fellow, was diabetic nephropathy. Walk us through, what's the nomenclature there? What's going on there?
1: In the original guideline, there's an entire chapter on this topic, and that's when the terminology, at least from a guideline, changed from diabetic nephropathy to diabetic kidney disease. I had the great fortune to co-chair the committee with Rob Nelson, who's really one of the preeminent researchers in the field of diabetic kidney disease and has spent his entire career understanding and describing the structural lesions in the kidney. One of the things that rob was meticulous about was to explain that diabetic nephropathy in the traditional sense was a glomerulopathy characterized by specific pathological lesions specifically mesangial expansion due to both matrix and cells glomerular basement membrane thickening and podocyte loss but the truth is as we have expanded our studies beyond very unique groups like the pima indians that he studies or the type one diabetic patients that Mike Maurer studied who had classic glomerulopathy. We now know that most people with diabetes and CKD have other lesions that are not encapsulated in the classic glomerulopathy. So in type two diabetes, about one third of biopsies in people who would be classified by albuminary and GFR as having diabetic kidney disease don't have glomerular lesions and or they have a non-diabetic form of CKD. Among the people who have diabetic lesions, about a third have mixed lesions. That is, they have diabetic kidney disease, and I'll talk about what that is in a moment, plus they have another disease. So it may be a mix of IgA and diabetic kidney disease. And then in the people of pure diabetic kidney disease, we now understand that the tubular interstitium is a very important target of the pathology that is diabetes-related, and it's a very inflammatory pathology characterized by inflammatory infiltrate, which leads to fibrosis. And actually, tubular fibrosis is a better correlate of GFR decline than glomerulosclerosis. But those are diabetic lesions not attributed to other conditions. And then there are also arteriolar lesions, particularly arteriolar hyalinosis, that also contributes to loss of kidney function over time and would not have been encapsulated in the classic nephropathy definition. So what we know now is people with diabetic kidney disease are diagnosed by albuminuria, low GFR or both. So it's really CKD and diabetes. And unless you've done a kidney biopsy or you've done imaging that could give you a specific diagnosis like PKD, you really have no idea what they have. So that's why DKD is used as the term. And it's really CKD and diabetes. And this is important in terms of where we go forward in the future, because as we have this exploding menu of therapies, we're going to need to do much more precise phenotyping so that we give the right treatment to the right patient at the right time.
3: Is there a reason that it's DKD and not DRD?
1: Well, it's to line up with the k terminology of CKD.
4: And it's a one. Yeah. And it's absolutely yeah. wonderful.
3: Set you up for that one. And it's yeah. the
0: most wonderful way
1: please, to Please to continue.
3: <laughs>
0: So how how are we going to phenotype these patients? I mean, we're not going to be doing biopsies on all these patients. That's not realistic.
1: Well, I guess, Joel, I would challenge you a little bit on that. I, I think we should be doing more biopsies in people with diabetes. We don't know what a lot of them have. And, you know, at the University of Washington, we're the central hub for the Kidney Precision Medicine Project, which is doing protocol biopsies on people with diabetes or hypertension-associated CKD as well as AKI. And you know the idea there is to really move to precision phenotyping. What we're treating is so heterogeneous and we can't keep layering drug on drug on drug. So now we have SGLT2s on top of an ACE and R. Are we gonna layer phenarinone on top of that? And then an anti-inflammatory? There's a limit to how much people can take to cost, to side effects. And a lot of the therapies probably aren't working in individual patients anyway. I guess I will say that I biopsy a lot more people now for this very reason. And because you'll be totally surprised at what you find. And you might even find something like membranous nephropathy, which requires a completely different approach.
0: So my next question is, have these large diabetic trials, have they had a subtrial that has has done biopsies on patients so that we can get a sense of, do we get a, a different... Uh, response based on different pathologic phenotypes?
1: Well, stay tuned because this flow trial has launched with semaglutide, which is a very large randomized trial of a GLP-1 in a DKD population that's almost exactly aligned with credence. And as a companion study, not really a sub-study, there's a companion study of a uh, hundred patients who will be randomized the same way and who will have kidney biopsies for exactly
0: and, and the state of the art right now is GLP-1s have, look like they have a cardiovascular signal, but we don't have any data on the progression of kidney disease signal. Is that right?
1: Oh, yes, we do. Tell me more. Okay. Out of leader it was the first one out the shoot, GFR between 30 and 60, significant slowing of GFR decline. Then rewind came out. And the endpoints of 40 or 50% decline thresholds hazards ratios were 0.5 and 0.7, highly statistically significant but exploratory. Then I was the PI on award seven, which was glutide in a CKD 3-4 population, 600 patients. GFR decline was the mean GFR was 38, and half of them had macroalbuminuria. So over one year. In the macroalbumin group, GFR declined by 5.5 mil per minute. There was no decline with either a high or low dose of doula. And then there's that's been published in, in Lancet. And then the exploratory analysis was looking at 40% decline or kidney failure defined by dialysis or transplant reduced by 50%. We had 60 events in under patients because in one year because it was such a high-risk kidney disease population. So that was a... Uh, active comparator with insulin, so it's not due to glycemic control. But that was only 600 patients. Now, dulaglutide got the label down to a GFR of 15, because we included people down to kidney failure. And even in people who had CKD4, we had the same effect on the event rate. So that paper isn't published. That data was presented at both ADA and ASN last year, but the paper is uh, winding its way through a major medical journal. And actually, at ASN, I just presented a pooled analysis of the SUSTAIN and PIONEER trials. So PIONEER was oral semaglutide in a CB outcome trial. And what we showed is that in the group with GFR of 30 to 60, the EGFR decline was slowed by 2 mil per minute per year. And remember that the CKD prognosis consortium has done analyses that show if a treatment effect is more than 0.75 mil per minute per year difference, that's highly likely to predict reduced risk of kidney failure. So that's led us to Flow, which is now the big RCT of semaglutide, and then the companion study of a hundred patients. That, that just
6: shows Joel that you did not wow. read chapter four. There is a. There's a there's I a, didn't read chapter four.
0: I did not. I did, I was chapter there's one. There's a 1B there,
6: one b guideline there which goes yeah. over this, you know. So so thank you for you know uh, saving me.
1: Full disclosure: I've been working at this for a long time, and this this is exactly what I think about every day. So I appreciate the chance to tell you a little more about what's in, you know, what's the movie playing in the background of those guideline recommendations. And you know, the other thing too, is that if you look at other fields where histology is so important in terms of driving p- disease progression, like in oncology, you have to have tissue. Look at what's happened in breast cancer. I was an intern a long time ago, 1982. The year AIDS broke in Chicago, Jenny, I was at Northwestern when all hell broke loose at that place. And oncology then was very hopeless. If a woman came in with breast cancer, you could tattoo dead on the forehead, whether they were young or old. And it was because we treated them all the same way, cytoxin, methotrexate, 5-FU, and prednisone. But the outcomes were horrible because we over-treated patients who didn't need all of that, and we killed them with the treatment, and we under-treated or gave them the wrong drug for what they really had with that cocktail of very nonspecific therapies. And that's a perfect example where they got tissue and biomarkers, they were aggressive about clinical trials and they customized therapy. So now, you know, you, you, that same lady that I saw in 1982 might just get a lumpectomy and have a great life and not be killed by cytoxin and, and then somebody young, with an aggressive BRCA gene is gonna get the full court press and a bone marrow transplant. We gotta start thinking like that. The Result is breast cancer mortality over my career gone down 50%. It's very hopeful. That has not been the case in kidney disease. It has not been survivable and hopeful. But now we have finally have therapies where we can move in that direction. So my personal opinion is that biopsies, biomarkers, and imaging needs to progress too. And that's, again, part of these projects that we're doing along with the biopsies is trying to advance imaging. So maybe someday we don't need a biopsy if we have good enough imaging and biomarkers. But that's where the field has to go if we really want to have the big impact. Love that.
6: So if that's I could great. ask, another, <laughs> up. Uh, on, that, uh, on the CKD heterogeneity angle, you know, in some of these mm-hmm. guideline statements, they say, for GFR more than 30 use this drug, for example. Uh, so does the DKD umbrella include, say, someone with a GFR of 55 and no albuminuria, but with type 2 diabetes like, you know, 3AA1 as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, really DKD is mm-hmm. CKD and diabetes. So if GFR 55 is CKD stage 3A.
4: Were we harping too much in albuminuria? I had a question about this today and say, SGLT2 inhibitors have worked on a wide range of GFRs and uh, albuminuria. So maybe, you know, we need to be more aggressive on all throughout diabetes and not, not just look at the ones with albuminuria. Were some of these trials that you were referring to are, are some of the primary endpoints kidney related? The are ones are, all, are, the, are they all secondary endpoints?
1: The CVOTs is secondary in award seven they were secondary because it was a glucose lowering therapy. We were testing the primary goal is to test for efficacy and safety of glycemia. We had like twelve GFR measurements, multiple albuminuria measurements that really gave us the power the 600 patients, and then 60 events to make some very strong observations mm-hmm. about GLP-1s on DKD. And actually, Novo's the sponsor of SEMA, but that was the study that flipped the switch for them to invest in the big trial. that will be 3,800 patients.
0: Wow. Oh, that's going to be outstanding. When do you think that will be completed? Is that like a 2025 thing?
1: No, it will be sooner because we just had a steering committee meeting this morning. It's 82% enrolled, even in spite of COVID. So we think we'll finish enrollment in March or April. And it's event-driven, so we don't know exactly how long it'll take. But, you know, we're projecting to probably be done end of 2022.
0: Trying to get a sense of uh, how the sausage was made. And I saw you had two patients as part of your group, what were their role? And how how, how did that interaction, what, what was going on with those
2: guys? I think this is the first time that patients have been involved in a KDGO guideline from the get-go. And uh, we were very key to include those two patients, Tammy Sadusky and, and Clint Hurst. Uh, I'd say the most important thing they did was keep us grounded. They kept us focused on issues that were relevant to patients kept us from avoiding esoteric salami making and making sausage instead. Make a guidance that was useful for for large numbers of patients and
0: excellent. I think th- I think that that's the direction these things need to be do be going. We need to keep uh, patients in mind all the time.
6: So the uh, these guidelines take a lot of effort, right? I, I know a bunch of other organizations have given up because they're so expensive, also to make. Uh, And like, we know, uh, Sam from Canada, so the CSN just says, hey, we'll just do a commentary on the KDGO guidelines. So I know they're funded by KDGO, but I think KDGO does have funding from industry, but it's kind of a hands off, uh, distant relationship. How does that work? That's
2: right. So KDGO does accept funding from industry. It's not direct funding for the guideline. It's for other administrative aspects of KDGO. There is a firewall put into place such that there's not direct funding of the guideline. Certainly, we felt as part of the guideline committee that we were insulated from that and not influenced directly by, by funding. Uh, many of the work group members do have relationships with industry. That's another related issue. And the KDGO uh, approach there is to try and get the people who know the data and know the field the best, uh, whether they're relationships or not, and to disclose those uh, fully and transparently to begin yeah. with.
6: And, and just to explore uh, on that angle further, you know, there are this there is this work group and there is the evidence review team, and they sort of seem to be sort of independent but talk to each other. How does that all work? You know, that because I think that group was based in Australia, if I'm not wrong. That's right. So it
2: might be useful to back up. About two years ago, the process started. And Peter Rossing, the co-chair, and I met with KDigo and with the ERT to start figuring out the scope of work.
0: ERT is an abbreviation I'm not familiar with. Uh, what evidence is Review Team. Is- I'm sorry. Yes. So <laughs> gotcha. the, Thank you. Uh,
2: Thank the you. Evidence Review Team, KDigo staff, and and the two co-chairs met to refine the, the scope of work. And then that was put out for open commentary so that the community could have input as to what was an appropriate uh, scope for this guideline and we had lots of input actually uh, when we put our original draft up there People had lots of ideas about what additional should or, or should not be included in, in the guideline Then the work group was formed and that included Kathy of course and uh, the work group weighed in on What were the questions that should be included for this for this guideline? Uh, and then the evidence review team went to work and they used their rigorous approach to evidence review And synthesis uh, based on the questions developed by the work group uh, to explore the literature and and answer the questions that we addressed. Uh, That evidence review then came back to the work group for interpretation and guidelines. So it was back and forth. Kathy, do you want to comment on that? You were were part of uh, almost all of that process.
1: I was really a pleasure to work with Peter and Ian as leaders. They did a masterful job of, you know, really guiding us and keeping us focused. And as Ian said too, the patients are essential because they they keep us grounded in what really
6: matters. So, um, so, so just a minor question. So, I mean, just to talk about the evidence review, you know, there's a, uh, at the end of the guidelines, there's a detailed explanation of what Ian was talking and like they had 244 trials, 31 observational studies, 50 reviews. It's like a, it's a massive undertaking. Um, so like many of the guidelines that happened recently for our readers, you know, there's the, they use the grade framework. So there is a one and two and the one are the we recommend and the two are the you know we suggest Uh, and one could you know for for, there are different implications right one is like most patients will do it Uh, it's like the expectation is almost everyone will do it and health policy makers could you know use that and and two is softer Uh, and there's the ABCD which is you know if it's direct evidence for hard outcomes it's an A but if it's indirect evidence or there is some bias it gets downgraded Or upgraded and so on and so forth. The curious thing was that the 2D is gone and and there are these practice points. And and, you know, nephrology guidelines have been infamous to be full of 2D guideline statements all the time. So, in some ways, it is refreshing, but are the practice points a different way of sneaking that in?
2: Yeah, it's a great point. So, you got the grade framework right and the recommendations and suggestions, the class one or two. Uh, depended, tracked a little bit with the A, B, C, D, but not entirely. The whole parachute analogy applies, right? There's not a whole lot of evidence that you need a parachute to jump out of a plane, but that gets a level one recommendation. Um, the evidence review team was very helpful in helping us stage the A, B, C, D level of, of evidence for each recommendation. Infamous is a good word for uh, prior guidelines that have been very generous with their 2D recommendations. And we did want to make a break from that. Uh, Cello Tonelli entered KDEGO as kind of a methods expert to help, help us figure out how, how to deal with this. We dropped such recommendations in- entirely but felt that there were still a need for practical guidance. So, And it's a little different than the old 2Ds. The old 2Ds looked like recommendations. They were phrased like recommendations. They told uh, people what to do, but they didn't have much evidence behind them. Here, we're explicitly saying that practice points don't have the level evidence of a recommendation. They're a little different in that we try and focus on things that are practical for
6: implementation. Uh, And that's super helpful. uh, You know, the the practice points seem like extremely helpful advice.
1: And, you know, the patients actually thought that that was important because they understood the academic endeavor. But what they want when they go for care is somebody who knows how to interpret Mm -hmm. and act. And that's where the practice points have to fill in because we're not going to have a huge RCT for every single thing we do.
2: But I think that. There, and there's, there's a difference between the old 2D recommendations and the practice points in their nature, to some extent, too. An old 2D might have been target a phosphorus level of less than 4.5. So, you know, that really is a, takes this form of recommendation. It looks a lot like a recommendation, and it is sort of a directive, but it's not in, in, in some ways a helpful directive. Ours are, practice points are supposed to be helpful directives. They're supposed to yeah. help you implement the recommendations that, that are evidence-based. Yeah. It's
6: a subtle distinction, but yeah, it does come across yeah. that way. I think they were, it's, it's a positive step. Yeah, and when you
0: read them, it does fill in the little gaps. They make a lot more sense in context of the guidelines.
2: That's right. That's the goal. And uh, there was a really a brilliant, nice summary of our guidelines on on NEFJC. Uh, thank you guys for uh, putting that together. And an example was uh, that we didn't get a chance to address during the Twitter chat. Uh, why is there no recommendation on a solid recommendation? on not using dual RAS blockade, right? There's solid evidence. Yeah, I thought that
6: would is, be like a 1A. Uh, it should be a 1A. To yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was my, I,
2: th- I had that written as one of my
0: it's,
6: questions. It's, yeah. a,
2: it's a great question. And, and the way we address that is the recommendation, a uh, class uh, 1B recommendation, there are also questions about why that's one's a 1B that we could <laughs> That was another one of my questions. You're taking up all my questions. I don't have nothing. First of all, uh, why not the dual rest? Well, the, the 1B recommendation is to use an ACE or an ARP. That's what we think people should do. And that's what we want people to take home, you use an ACE or an ARP. It's not an and in the recommendation, it's an or. The practice point then clarifies, don't use both. They kind of work together in that way. So in my mind, when I see it, you use an ace or an arb, the or is in there, you use one, you don't get, use both. So I think it is contained in that 1B recommendation. It's okay. inherent, to, and intrinsic to that 1B recommendation. But the practice point helps you interpret and apply that by saying, hey, and by the way, don't use them both at the same time. So that's, that's an example of how the practice we use the practice points in my mind.
4: And it diminishes the length of it, too.
2: That, that's right. It diminishes the length. And, and so we didn't want these long recommendations. We wanted them all to be easily interpreted and easily applied and, and people to focus on what is the recommendation. Uh, and, and then, you know, surround it with other guidance.
0: Before we go into chapter one, I just wanted to get, you know, last week at ASN Kidney Week, Fidelio comes out. We got a new diabetic kidney disease drug and it is not covered at all in this guideline. When are you guys going to update it? What's the plan we to make a this a living so guideline? Catherine was telling us. Living guideline. Please. Well, Catherine was saying the ADA does it every year. They update their stuff. They yep. keep it, you know, yeah. it's like a, they're keeping it up to date. I think we should have edit. Edit capability of a Google Doc. I think that's it. Well,
2: I'd love to hear what, how you guys think we should update the guideline because it is a work in progress. One thing we know is that the Magic App platform contains all of our meta-analyses that the evidence review team performed. And the, and the evidence review team will add Fidelio to our mineral receptor antagonist meta-analysis. That's useful. Um I'm not sure how many people go to Magic App. I encourage you to do it. It's actually pretty friendly and shows you the data. Swap, Neil, you're an evidence buff, I can tell. You'd probably love to uh, cruise through Magic App a little bit. But but not everybody will. And so we're still thinking about ways then to update the text and the and the words of the recognition.
0: And this is this is right in Matt's wheelhouse. Why don't I get MOC credit um, for reading the guidelines? We should. Did you guys think about kind of setting that up and, and talking with any of the people doing CME and MOC type of stuff? Because, I mean, it's a bunch of work to read through
2: these. That's a great idea. Uh, I think it would probably have to come with uh, some sort of quiz or questions or something uh, like the NEST apps and KSAPs uh, do. It, that's a whole bunch of work. You've already commented on how much of work it is to put one of these guidelines out. Um, so this is more, but it's, it's actually... It's a great idea.
4: But if you have a carrot to draw people in to read it, more people will use it.
0: I can help work on that for you. You can? I can do that. But it just, it just seems like of all the uh, things that nephrologists should be doing to keep themselves up to date, reading through this document, it, there's it's hard to imagine a higher yield activity. I mean, it really is it's a good
2: document. I'm glad you think so. I would we want people to read just it too. I'm just trying to Yeah, and I would love to give uh, credit uh, to people for for reading it.
0: I'm just buttering you up before the tough yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah quite honestly. Okay. Let's, let's start with, uh, the, I'm doing chapter one. Chapter one is called, uh, uh, comprehensive care in patients with diabetes and CKD. And it starts with its very first point is a practice point. It's not even a guideline. It's not even a, what do you call them? A recommendation. It's just a practice point has this cute little pyramid and says that we need to be, uh, thinking about all these different aspects of care for patients. So uh, kind of a global approach to patients. Is that, is that the idea here? Is that a comprehensive view of what, of what we should do there?
2: That's right. It's setting the stage, really, and providing context explicitly
0: doing that and, and then explicitly saying hey we're not going to cover blood pressure we're not going to cover cholesterol those lipids those are going to be covered in alternative kdigo guidelines and but then it jumps to the treatment of with an ace inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker and you know th- this was like the bible when i was in fellowship and, and even now this is like a, the foundation of nephrology and it doesn't get a 1a recommendation and then i read the explanation for it and you guys kill those those studies you say they got bad allocation there's bias in that you know were we just bad at RCTs back in the 2000s?
2: Well, RCTs have gotten better. Part of the issue is is one of presentation. And, you know, Renal and IDNT were high quality studies that showed that if you have macro, what we used to call it macroalbuminuria and elevated creatinine, and we're at very high risk of DKD progression that an ARB slowed progression, and the captoprills group in type 1 diabetes with heavy albuminuria showed the same thing. One of the issues was the data with clinical outcomes are not as strong in the microalbuminuria range, 30 to 299. So uh, the ADA, for example, has given two recommendations. They've given a high-level recommendation for macroalbuminuria and a lower-level recommendation for microalbuminuria uh, for treatment with a RAS inhibitor. And we thought about doing that, we could have done that, but we preferred to make a, a simpler, uh, clearer message that any sort of albuminuria area- and hypertension and diabetes merits a RAS inhibitor. So we went for short and sweet and streamlined, but by lumping those groups together, the evidence for the microalbuminuria group being uh, somewhat weaker led us to to go with a 1B. I
4: like that. Simplify it, make it it very short to the point so that more people can can do it in practice. I,
2: I think you'll see that theme throughout, right? And we've talked about that with other recommendations already, uh, that, that our goal is to have these, the, the most important things implemented for the most patients. Mm-hmm.
4: So it's almost like uh, someone sees a patient and they can talk themselves out of a certain medication because they're not a hundred percent clear on the guideline because it's so complex. That's right. And so if you can simplify that and say, you know, here's what we recommend to do. So you capture all those people that need
2: it. That's right. We don't want to slice and dice and make things complicated. We want to make it clear and easy for people to do what's evidence based.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and in fact, now that we have data on ACE R two decades out, it's still abysmally low. And fraction of people don't that know are using All other reasons, but making it easier is certainly one way to reduce the barriers to getting people on these. therapy.
0: And then you do give a very specific out that if patients don't have uh, measurable albuminuria, no need to use an ACE inhibitor, and that seems to follow the data that these drugs don't seem to be helpful beyond their blood pressure lowering in patients that don't have albuminuria. And then you guys wade into the hyperkalemia hyperkalemia field, and this is just a practice point, it's not one of your guidelines, but said that recommend uh, using uh, taking steps to maintain the ACE and or the ARB in patients that develop hyperkalemia and kind of give people a menu of options there.
2: That's right. And that's practical guidance, but not evidence-based. We did search for evidence on uh, potassium-lowering therapies and how they impacted clinical outcomes and we did not find evidence with clinical outcomes that specific drugs or strategies impacted clinical outcomes. So we felt that we could not make an evidence-based recommendation. We tried to synthesize that body of knowledge and that body of literature with this practice. Yeah,
0: you guys were real specific that the binder data that we have on um and zir- sodium zirconium cyclosilicate are they're just lab changes. Even though they kept them up for a year, they didn't show any kind of hard outcomes and that was that was um uh, And then uh you said people shouldn't smoke. You guys go out on a limb there. A 1D recommendation way out way out
2: only a 1D and Did you notice the practice point there too? There's another practice point about avoiding secondhand smoke. That's also not, uh, that's a little bit more out on a limb. Most people don't talk about that, but there is observational evidence for that as well.
0: You know, one of the things that we've seen in other kid ego guidelines is they always point out, uh, uh questions for research and uh, you guys don't have that. Is that right? No, They do. They, they do. do. Yeah. Oh, you do. Uh, me.
2: They don't make it into the executive summary. They're at the end of each of the chapters. So they're kind of hard to see, but there are some good and important.
6: Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the other section that's just before that is also values and preferences. Uh, that's also, you know, it, it doesn't seem exciting, but I think I, I, I really liked some of the discussion there about, you know, cost and, and patient preferences and stuff like that, which is, again, it's this kind of advice that goes beyond the headline recommendation, which is actually... It makes for very useful reading.
2: Right, and particularly useful for a worldwide audience. Mm. Applying healthcare to people with diabetes and CKD varies so much around the world, and uh, that's where the values and preferences often entered in. Our patients uh, had thoughts there as well in terms of how to uh, accommodate our recommendations.
4: Before we move on to Chapter 2, can you tell us how the patient participants, uh, just at the very end of each chapter, um, made uh, their recommendations known to that chapter, Chapter 1? Like, what are some points that they uh, specifically helped uh, shape? And maybe that will help us figure out like what, what's important to patients and while we're taking care of taking care of
2: them. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think that their insistence on evaluating the whole patient uh, was part of the reason that we started with this practice point. Their insistence on targeting uh, multiple aspects of care. So I think that was that was largely patient driven, thinking about other issues, you know, in the discussion, in the decision about whether or not to have a, a poorly evidence-based smoking recommendation, they were clear that they thought that was important to include a smoking recommendation. Those are the two examples I can think of for chapter one. I'll say that uh, the patients were particularly involved in two other chapters, which you might guess, uh, one was nutrition. And then even more than that was the chapter five on self-management and systems, where they had a lot of passion about, uh, about how patients should be involved in their own care and systems should be tailored to address patient concerns.
3: Who's got chapter two? Two is me. Uh, chapter two is also um, short and sweet. I guess no pun intended. Um, <laughs> Good one. There's two recommendations here. Both are 1C. So the first one talks about recommendations for glycemic control. And so the recommendation is the use of the hemoglobin A1C, which is a percentage of glycated hemoglobin to monitor glycemic control in patients with diabetes and CKD. And there's a brief discussion of why um, A1C may not be the best marker in patients with um, particularly advanced CKD so EGFR of less than 30 or on dialysis due to the shortened red blood cell lifespan. And so that may lead towards a bias lower A1C that would not really be reflective of the actual glucose levels. Um, And so for that reason, um, that's the, the 1C recommendation. And there are some alternatives to better glucose monitoring. And so the one that's specifically mentioned is the use of CGM or continuous glucose monitoring and the Specific um, discussion is around how this might be used and so used in a short-term fashion in the process of titrating medication, to so perhaps use for maybe, um, I know in, in practice, these monitors um, can be on for about 10 days to two weeks at a time. And so I think this is something that can be considered. Um, a question that I had for um, for Ian and, and Dr. Tuttle um, was, did you consider including discussion of other um, markers such as fructosamine or glycated albumin from very little that I know about it? I know the data is not really great that they're better, but what are your thoughts on using those as replacements for the A1C if there's concern? of inaccuracy.
1: I actually led writing of that chapter. In fact, we did a very detailed analysis of fructosamine. Basically, the long and short of it is there's not a lot of data, but they're either no better or worse than A1C in terms of fidelity to whatever gold standard measure of blood glucose. So there's no advantage And it also keeps the glycemic monitoring consistent with the way diabetes is managed generally. And again, from a patient viewpoint, that's important to not make it too hard. We did emphasize the importance of self-monitoring or CGM. And again, this gets to what Ian said earlier about international applicability. CGMs are wonderful, but not everybody has access to those things. And that that is actually the best way to monitor glucose, especially in the short term. The other thing too, that we, this really has to fall in the realm of a practice point Uh, in the field of diabetes. This is an important area of research is the CGM index, which can be used if you will, to almost individualize an A1C because you can get an individual's glucose levels and align those with an A1C that might be different than what the lab standards are. So we talked about as a practice point, that that would be a way to further refine the monitoring. The other thing too is besides red cell turnover, there are a number of factors that can affect A1C. And actually depending on the assay and the conditions of the patient, things like acidosis and carbamylation, even CKD itself can tend to raise A1C because that's a glycated, advanced glycation end product. So in an individual patient, we really have no idea how accurate the A1C is. It could be on the money, It could be too high or it could be too low. So we ended up making the recommendation that we did because there's really nothing better than A1C, but we emphasize complementing it with some direct measure of blood glucose, especially in people on insulin. The other thing too is people on oral agents really... The value of doing self-monitoring or CGMs is is not been established. So this is most important for patients treated with insulin, such as those with type one. But remember in advanced CKD, insulin is still the most commonly used glucose-lowering agent. Uh, One, because there are side effects, or contraindications with many of the oral agents with low GFR, The probably the biggest one of course is hypoglycemia and insulin is, is something that we can titrate on a day-to-day basis, but it does come with some burdens. But it's important since so many people are treated with insulin to give, we, we felt it was important to provide whatever evidence possible on how to monitor glycemia. I guess I missed the memo that nephrologists didn't take care of diabetes because even (laughs) when I was a young nephrologist, which came after being an endocrinologist, that was in our wheelhouse. And you know, what's become clear, especially with the newer glucose soaring agents is a lot of nephrologists feel it's like not in their wheelhouse and they, are a little intimidated about adjusting glucose-lowering therapies. And I think we have to get over that. We have to get back to our roots. So many of our patients have diabetes, more than half, actually. So we have more proportional diabetes in nephrology practices than in endocrine practices.
0: Oh, my gosh. Wait a minute. Can we rewind that? Can we, can we just re-say that? There's a higher fraction of diabetic patients than an endocrinologist deals with? Yeah
1: endocrinologists basically see type ones and rarely type twos and the practices are filled with other weird rare endocrine things just to be honest with you, when i'm doing nephrology i see more diabetic patients than when i'm in the endocrine clinic and so that's something nephrologists are going to have to look in the mirror and say diabetes is our problem it is our disease so background to the guideline is we felt it was important to emphasize the management of diabetes meaning glycemia as well as all the other stuff that we are going to talk about and part of it is mo- appropriate monitoring in order to guide therapy
0: Catherine this cl- this continuous glucose monitoring it's a, you use it for 10 day stretches is that right
1: there are lots of different monitors now but yeah it's typically there 10 days or a few weeks some are going out longer now 3 or 4 weeks and that technology is just rapidly emerging. Even during the time we were doing the guidelines, we had to change them because the technology was moving so quickly. I
0: just want to get a sense, like, how, how do you use this technology? When do you when do you use it? Why do you use it?
2: I think there are a number of times you can use it. One is when uh, you think that you may have a patient where the hemoglobin A1C isn't representing their, uh, their, their true average glucose. And as Kathy said, Uh, On average, hemoglobin A1C was pretty good, but there's a huge cloud around that, and plenty of people are biased high or or biased low, and if if their finger sticks and their symptoms aren't lining up with the hemoglobin A1C, it's wise to get a a CGM and just compare the estimated CGM that's derived from the mean measured glucose to what you get in the lab, and you can see whether that patient is someone who's biased low or, or high in terms of their hemoglobin A1C. Another time to do it is for people who are getting a lot of hypoglycemia where they have a lot of glycemic variability and you need to titrate their medications, usually insulin uh, in terms of the, the, the types of insulin and time of day that you administer it to avoid that hypoglycemia to try and even things out because there's no way to get at the variability throughout the day in glucose from a hemoglobin A1C measurement. It just doesn't cut it. You've got you've to get real glucose data. So those are probably the two most most frequent ones, and this is still a technology that nephrologists don't know much about, and I think it'll stay that way for a little longer. But these technologies are advancing very quickly, as Kathy said. Medicare covers these CGM devices uh, for Medicare patients, and we're going to see them continue to expand. And it, you know we don't have the data we'd like yet about how to apply continuous glucose monitoring to dialysis patients and advanced CKD patients, but it's very promising because of the limitations to hemoglobin A1C that exists. We badly need something else, and this is where the promise is.
1: Well, and just as a practical point, treating a lot of people with diabetes and advanced CKD is I have many people who are on a pump CGM combination, which works extraordinarily well. They love it. And, you know, people with type 1 diabetes, one of my, several of my patients who've had pancreas transplants that end up failing, when offered a new pancreas, they actually prefer the CGM and pump. So, you know, it's it's actually a real advance in terms of, you know, an organ replacement therapy that has high patient acceptance because it works so well.
6: We don't have data on outcomes, but do we have uh, data that uh, these things are valid in dialysis patients Uh, you know they the the glucose they values they give are uh, better probably better than the hemoglobin A1C and stuff.
2: We do have data that there's that they read true values of glucose in in dialysis patients in advanced CKD. There's one exception, and that's PD patients treated with icodextrin, uh, which can interfere with um, with some of the CGM meters, not not all of them. The outcomes data we have are not in CKD patients. They're from type 1 diabetes trials, which show that using uh, CGM real-time, and there are two modes. One is blinded, where you collect the data and you look at it after you've, uh, you've collected it. The other one is real-time, whereas Kathy was alluding to, you can then titrate your ther- patient, can titrate their therapies as they see their glucose trajectories. And with that real-time CGM mode, in type 1 diabetes trials have shown that you can lower Um, uh, hemoglobin A1c, you can improve glycemic control without increasing hypoglycemia. That's the extent of our outcome data uh, in 2020. But more studies are underway.
3: So I'll finish up the chapter here. Um, So the second recommendation is about uh, targets um, in these patients. And uh, so the recommendation is um, an individualized A1C target ranging from 65 to 8% in patients with diabetes and CKD not treated with dialysis. And so as we were discussing earlier about the varying pathologies in patients with diabetes and CKD, similarly, their A1C should be individualized. And um, I really liked figure three, which uh, kind of shows different factors to consider when you're trying to decide which... of that range should you be on closer to 6.5 or closer to 8. And those factors included a propensity of treatment to cause hypoglycemia, as well as resources to treat that patient's hypoglycemia awareness. We know that some patients may have a higher or lower awareness of this, their overall life expectancy, presence of comorbidities, the presence of macrovascular complications, um, the severity of CKD. And so the more severe the CKD, the more your target should go maybe towards the 8% range. So that kind of wraps up chapter 2. I don't know if um, our authors had anything else to add.
1: Sure, I think you got that pretty well. I mean, it gets to balancing benefits and risks. And, you know, somebody with early CKD, type 1 diabetes without a lot of hypoglycemia, unless there's a reason not to follow the usual guidelines because there are many benefits to glycemic control that may not be kidney related, especially in those patients like prevention of retinopathy progression. On the other hand, if you have an older individual with many comorbidities who doesn't have decades ahead of them to live in whom the risk of hypoglycemia is going to outweigh the benefits of intensive control then you go higher. That's where one size doesn't fit all again. And where you know we can look at each individual and it's not just whatever the, the prescriber says, right? It's also what the patient wants. So we emphasize the importance of partnership and care and patient empowerment and self-management so that you know it's it's not the goal that we give them it's the goal that we discuss and agree on
0: yeah this is one of the things that i find just so frustrating when my dialysis patients go to their uh, primary care doctors and they are trying to shoot for that a1c of less than seven and it's just like that you know these patients are on dialysis they're already have compromised vision you know What are are you trying to accomplish with that low A1C? And these patients are repeatedly being admitted with hypoglycemia and having all kinds of complications from this therapy. And it feels like there's almost no upside in in those situations.
1: So, Joel, that makes the case for why nephrologists should take care of diabetes in their patients. Okay, because, you know, all that stuff, the primary care doc doesn't. They mean well. Frankly, your life would probably be easier if you just took care of it you know, even from a, your, your own burden and the patients would be happier.
0: Part of it is the absurdity of medicine is that these family practitioners are getting graded by the fraction of patients that they can get there to hemoglobin A1c target, right? Like they, they are being really pushed and it's just, it, it ends up being harmful to my patients. Yeah.
2: And that reinforces these clinical practice guidelines are guidelines that are meant to be applied individually. They're not meant to be standards of care and healthcare metrics. Those are different. Things. Excellent.
0: Anybody else have any other comments on the on Chapter Two that they want to make? Okay, who's got three?
5: That would be me. Compared to the other chapters, this was a little bit more fun for me to dive into in the lifestyle chapter. Uh, so I thought it would be nice fodder, definitely for the podcast. Uh, but there are two main topics driving the recommendations uh, in this section. The first one is uh, related to diet, and then the second is physical activity. So that's what we are talking about when we refer to lifestyle starting with the physical activity because kind of like with smoking right it's intuitive that you do want to promote exercise in patients and so patients with ckd and diabetes are advised to exercise at moderate intensity for a cumulative duration of 150 minutes per week and uh, that type of exercise also could include walking is kind of what i understand it doesn't have to necessarily be at the gym and the Uh, Practice point point 3.22 is basically to avoid sedentary behavior. So that seems to be fairly uh, self-explanatory. There was something in practice point 1 under that. There's a recommendation to consider age and ethnic background. I was wondering what that was referring to in the context of exercise. That's a
2: good question. I think the overriding goal here is to try and promote physical activity, but understand that it needs to be within the the abilities of, of each individual patient uh, for, for safety, and you, you can't ask somebody with mobility uh, limitations to go out and, and necessarily walk 150 minutes a week. So it's just uh, a caution, um, and of course, older age is higher risk of falls, et cetera, and, and higher risk of frailty, so that needs to be taken into account. Ethnicity, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why ethnicity is in there. It's a, it's a good point. Kathy?
1: Well, I guess my thought about that is I think acknowledging different cultures have different preferences for what they like to do. Uh, some cultures like to dance. Some cultures like to walk. Maybe people who live on the islands swim. You know, I think I think it was meant in the sense of honoring different traditions and cultures.
0: What does the literature of exercise and diabetes look like? Is it are they looking at hard outcomes like mortality and amputations and what have you, or is it uh, is it softer outcomes? Almost all softer outcomes.
1: <laughs> Lifestyle studies are really hard to do with hard outcomes. It's just
0: hard to get changes in in behavior, right? Like, right. It's just hard to get. Yeah. patients to do the thing
2: we all feel that these are critical but they're critical when behaviors are maintained over years and decades uh, and how do you do a, an RCT that maintains separation and, and lifestyle for for decades it's just so hard to do so intermediate outcomes are really the focus and and there are there are evidence uh, even in the CKD literature of improved intermediate outcomes with uh, with exercise but it's hard to make. Uh, high-quality recommendations based on those outcomes.
1: And Ian is certainly the epidemiologist, but there's strong epidemiologic data that supports physical activity as something that promotes longevity generally and not exclusive to any group, but I don't think it excludes uh, people with kidney disease.
0: I'm so so concerned about reverse causality there, like people that feel better exercise more and they were going to live longer anyway, right? They were just less sick to begin with. It's just... Makes makes me worried about that data.
2: Right, and, and so we, I think we discussed observational data in, in the um, guideline, but it's not really used uh, to evaluate uh, evidence or, or make strengthened recommendations.
5: Okay, so moving on to diet, one of the first practice points uh, was encouraging people to incorporate more plant-based food items and then having less processed meat, refined carbs, and sweetened beverages. And then uh, there were two main recommendations that were in the 2D category, and that is to limit protein intake to 0.8 grams per kilogram per day if you have CKD, and less than 2 grams of sodium per day. So one of my questions was, you know, kind of thinking about the context of the practice point of encouraging more plant-based items in the diet. Uh, With the protein restriction, is that mainly referring to animal protein, uh, or can you increase your protein intake if it's plant-based?
2: Maybe, Kathy, I'll take the first one and let you handle the protein, since that's uh, literature you've contributed to in, in, in such great detail. You know, the, the practice point is is really meant to, to say, uh, when, when people with kidney disease get so many different thoughts, so much advice about what you can and mostly cannot eat, the, the practice point is meant to say, hey, most importantly, eat a healthy diet, uh, and a healthy diet that's balanced and not too heavy on meats and, and processed foods. That's the idea. Uh, rather than telling people, don't eat this and don't eat that, eat a balanced, healthy diet. And then we did do a literature review on, on all sorts of different diets, uh, and protein and sodium had were the only two areas that had really a, a sufficient evidence to, to comment on. Uh, Kathy, do you want to comment on the on the protein?
1: Sure. So I want to back up and say that it's not really the limit is 0.8. The recommended target is 0.8. And one of the things too, from a conceptual standpoint, we want to be giving positive messages, not don't eat this. Instead, eat this because it's good for you. So um, long story short is 0.8 gram per kilo per day total protein is the US RDA. But if you look at American habits, many Americans, in fact, most eat far beyond what the requirements are. And this isn't trial evidence, but, and, and you know, the old low protein diet studies are very hard to do. And there are many caveats I don't want to get into, but, but there is evidence that a high protein diet, particularly if it's comprised of animal muscle protein, so-called red meat, is harmful. And those are epi studies because we're not gonna do a clinical trial of something that hurts people. We're not gonna test whether smoking causes lung cancer. But you know, there's an abundance of evidence that high red meat diets are associated with all-cause mortality, with cardiovascular disease. In the kidney literature, you know, there haven't been the measurements like we've had for cardiovascular disease, but you know, if you look at, you know, of course, the old Brenner lab data, the high-protein diets, you know, were used to accelerate every form of kidney disease in experimental models. So, you know, you buy it or you don't, but the truth is that because we, we, we in humans are not gonna have the hard data that we need on dietary protein, why, why recommend eating more than people need? So we say meet the RDA. And then on the available evidence, Weak as it is, it turns out that if you hit the RDA level, or maybe slightly lower, 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.8, there are benefits on intermediate outcomes like albuminuria, maybe GFR, depending on the study that you look at. So we recommended eat the healthy amount, enough, but not too much, but not a restriction because again, we want to shift the emphasis to do things that are good, not avoid things that are bad. So we've said, eat the right amount, don't eat too much. Eat good food, eat plants, don't eat too much. With regard to the plant-based diets, again, trial-based evidence, we're not going to have rigorous outcomes data. But the truth is, if you look at things that we think drive kidney disease progression, like blood pressure, in fact, we've published on this that if you look at the amino acid composition, we've actually done detailed studies that in patients who have a plant-based diet and there's a different amino acid profile in blood in people who eat more plants than animal meat, that those amino acids are actually associated with lower blood pressures, for example. Like threonine is associated oh, with a lower blood pressure, whereas alanine is associated with a higher blood pressure.
0: And animals have more alanine than threonine? That's, that, that's what it comes down to.
1: Well, depends on the source, right? But in general, yes.
0: So weird. So one of the focuses of the,
4: of the practice guidelines is to be practical. So what, um, I think it's still very challenging is 0.8 grams per kilogram is not the most friendly way to tell anyone anything. Is there uh, a way that both of you would describe this to a patient so they can understand it?
2: There is a table and a figure in the guideline that shows uh, animal and plant sources of protein and and lays out how
6: much uh, protein various representative foods have. And there's a a picture of a plate with food portions as well, with different kinds of plates, uh, which are, you know, like geographically different also.
0: Catherine, there's nobody who's more dedicated to diet than your typical keto uh, aficionado. And a lot, no, and honestly, a lot of them get there because they have diabetes and they go on this low carbohydrate and they need, you know, they got, you got to get the macronutrients from someplace. And they typically get it from protein. And I think we've all seen it. We've seen that diabetes melt away when they get off the carbohydrates. It's really impressive. When you're on a keto diet, do you have a sense of what that protein is at? One and a half or two grams per kilogram? Or I'm just going to try to get, I don't, I have no idea what that protein intake is like. Do you have a sense?
1: I think it varies widely depending on not only the diet, but how people apply the diets, right? I mean, you know, if you look at like Atkins diet or something, you know, what one One person's interpretation of it is really different than another's. I, you know, I'm not so worried about proportional amounts as total amount from a kidney standpoint. Ketogenic diets, I guess, you know, we don't know if you get rid of diabetes, does that mitigate things so much it's worth it? That's an unanswered question. But I think those diets are really hard to stay on long-term too. People don't feel very well when they're ketotic. Ketogenic diets with an SGLT2 inhibitor could be risky in terms of ketoacidosis. And they, particularly now that that is the standard of care for diabetic kidney disease. That alone is a reason to avoid a ketogenic diet so that you can keep someone on SGLT2 without risking increasing risk of ketoacidosis. Uh,
6: if I could ask a quick question on that, like mm-hmm. there are particular targets, you know, uh, that you give, uh, and this is something in hypertension also that we struggle with, is, is giving people a target useful or saying, you know, go towards that target or whether you achieve it or not? Uh, you know, in the sense if someone goes from 1.5 to 1 gram of protein intake, I think that's good, right? Even if they don't achieve 0.8. Yeah.
1: None of these things are all or nothing. I mean, we've said in general, that's a goal, but you know, we'll take progress over perfection, right?
0: The the sodium goal is kind of your standard uh, uh, generic sodium goal that everybody adopts is two gram sodium diet. But when you have the big epidemiologic studies, the that you curve for sodium intake quite a bit higher than two grams, right? Uh, the the nadir of the lowest mortality is like three and a half, or <laughs> how do we get to two grams?
2: Yeah, this one stuff. The the nadir in the J is lower, I believe. I thought it was near two or even below two. Could be remembering the data incorrectly. You know, the the this is essentially a borrowed uh, target. And uh, another thought that we had, we we were all for simple. We were all for direct. Another thing that we tried to do was not put out mixed messages. And so we essentially borrowed this two gram sodium diet because it's what the AHA has used, it's what KDEGO has used in the past, other groups have have used. Um, There certainly is good data that lower um, sodium is is better. You know, the exact target is debatable. And here we went uh, largely for consensus.
0: Yeah, so it looks like it's right around, so you see two grams for here it's quite above quite a bit above 1 right it's a, it, yeah. nader is about 4
2: yeah which uh, cohort is this
0: this is um, this is a 2014 nejm article urinary sodium participants yes, that
6: this was a pure pure you know, study from selim yusuf yeah. the epidemiological study okay
2: yeah yeah pure investigators yeah, yeah that, in this cohort certainly it's uh, it, it is above 2 but it, that's a good explanation
0: in the end you want to um, you don't want to have these dual lean, guidelines, and you guys are going to walk along
2: with it. Right. Them, and if them. we'd said less than four grams, then, you know, people would say, well, why are you different than everybody else? And why would you base it on observational data, which we know is confounded, right? So it's pragmatic. Yeah. Uh,
6: yeah. Ways. And I'm, I'm on the um, Hypertension Canada guidelines for this. And, and again, we chose the same thing. Like WHO says two grams. Let's just keep it harmonious. And, and knowing that, you know, we want people to go down and not necessarily achieve... Grams as long as they're
4: going down. Doesn't the USDA say 1.5 for hypertension? Yeah, the
0: cardiologists push way low with with thin thin data. It really it's, they want it to be they want it they want it to work better than it actually does in the trials. The amount of inertia. The sodium guidelines is massive. It's it, it's interesting to me.
4: The average U.S. diet is, what, three and a half?
2: Yeah, and you can argue whether uh, this gets back to Swap Neal's point. I mean, so few people actually meet these. It's really uh, aspirational in some ways and, and trying to get there. So, uh, and, and this is one also that took some heat from other. This cultures, entire
4: right? chapter, COVID-19 is going to take a big toll on it. The, not, not as much exercise, yeah. not as much getting out of the house, diets that are worse. So this is really important to,
0: right. to talk about.
2: Maybe less McDonald's.
0: <laughs> Jenny, what else have we got in this chapter? That's it. You guys were soft on weight loss. I was surprised. Usually everybody says, got to lose weight, got to lose weight. And you guys were like, "Yeah, we don't really see significant improvement in outcomes when you do that. The data on bariatric surgery is really pre- is oh, yeah. pretty positive in diabetic kidney disease.
2: Weight, weight loss. Um, yeah, for albuminuria. That's right. There's the concerns about weight loss because uh, of observational data, but high quality observational data that with advanced CKD, people spontaneously restrict their, their food intake and their protein intake in, in particular, and, and so there's a concern for malnutrition. And given that, um, particularly at lower EGFRs uh, and, and the complete absence of weight loss studies uh, with advanced chronic kidney disease, we, we felt that we could not recommend that with, with lack of benefit potential safety concerns. So that's why we
4: exercise quick. exercise exercise
0: yeah i'll tell you jo- jordy cohen did an excellent presentation at asn kidney week on uh, weight loss and uh, advanced kidney disease mainly kind of focusing on the bariatric literature i would i had no idea that, that any of this existed it was pretty interesting stuff and there was pretty yeah. compelling data small study small series like yeah. nothing nothing big you know 30 patients here 60 patients there but uh, impressive uh, results
2: undoubtedly there. or if you're trying to get a transplant that's what I was going to say, Matt. That's there are so many interesting questions here. There's a lot. There's a lot to be studied, and and that, from a practical standpoint, getting a transplant is a big deal.
4: If you're not eligible, and then needing to get a transplant it's important. Mm-hmm. Okay, we are going to hit
0: the sticky part of the
6: guidelines, right?
0: Chapter four. Frozen.
4: Floz
6: yes. So. <laughs> yeah, Lose-nators. so is the chapter which has the 1A guideline, and it has it has a couple of 1B as well. Uh, so the diamond yes. in the rough. So uh, let's go one at a time. So the one the 1B comes first, and that's uh, we recommend reading patients with DKD uh, with the eGFR greater than 30 with metformin. That's a 1B, and there's a few practice points we can come back to. The one A is that we recommend treating the same patients with DKD, GFR greater than 30 with uh, Flozin. And uh, then there is a one another one B that in patients with uh, DKD who have not achieved their, whatever the individualized glycemic targets are from chapter two, uh, despite a, a metformin or an SGLD2 inhibitor or who are unable to use them uh, to go with the long acting uh, GLP-1. Uh, and that's, you know, Catherine has already talked uh, about the GLP-1s and the fa- fact that we should really understand how to use them. Uh, and there's a very nice table on the GLP-1s. Um, so let's, uh, apart from that, uh, there are a couple of things which are notable, the practice points these are, but you know, uh, in, in, a, in a departure from the ADA, the KDGO says uh, metformin or SGLT2 inhibitor should be first line. Uh, the ADA says metformin and then SGLT2 inhibitors. Is that right? And, and, and we are kind of saying these are on par with each other.
4: Can you re- repeat that one more time? Yeah, big. so
6: so uh, again, this is not a guideline, but it's it's a practice point, and there's a nice figure that goes along with it. Uh, but they are saying that um, first line treatment, apart from you know lifestyle therapy, should be metformin or a uh, SGLT two inhibitor, and additional treatment as required for glycemic control. So uh, so SGLT two inhibitor. First line four for DKD for Anyone with
4: CKD and diabetes. With the GFR
6: greater than 30A. Eh?
2: So I was on the ADA professional practice committee, I think from 2016 to 2019, they make the ADA standards of care recommendations. And that, I think the first SGLT2 inhibitor came out and recommendation came out in 2018 or 2019. So I, and, I, and they've evolved a little bit, but I know those guidelines pretty well as well. And, and I think they're more similar than different, to be honest. The ADA says that uh, for type 2 diabetes, metformin is the first-line therapy, but then they go on and now they say, well, regardless of your hemoglobin A1C, if you have CKD, you should, you should add an SGLT2 inhibitor. We're saying if you have type 2 diabetes and, and CKD, you should use both. It gets to the same place, actually. It, so in my opinion, the ADA and uh, the KDG guidelines are congruent. Um, that most patients should be on both if you have an
5: EGFR more than 30. Okay. Well,
1: and Ian, I totally agree with you. And remember, they're going to see new onset diabetes. ADA is addressing that. KDigo is really not addressing the person with new onset diabetes because new on, people with new onset diabetes don't usually have kidney disease. They can, but not typically.
2: That's right. So we're more concerned, and we have some practice points around this, about transitioning people on to, to SGLT2 inhibitors who are already on other background
6: therapies. Yeah, so so before we go there, if I could, you know, we like controversy, we like, you know, to make things a little bit more uh, fun. Um, so, so you're saying, and it's not, or it's, And
4: also uh, would to just point out that there is no mention of albuminuria in that at all.
6: Exactly. Exactly. So the, the point is, yes. if there's someone with a GFR of 55 with no albuminuria, uh, they should still, uh, and they don't have cardiovascular disease, right? Like not the empire canvas kind of patient. They should still get an SGLT2 inhibitor. Am I right? Yes, they should. And uh,
2: this is something that people debate, uh, or I could say quibble about, since we're uh, talking a, a contact sport here about what to do with these patients. But if you uh, these patients weren't included in Credence, they weren't in DAPA CKD, but they were abundantly represented in Empareg, Declare, and uh, and Canvas. And those patients had marked benefit. They did have protection from chronic kidney disease progression. Their rates were not as high as those who had albuminuric, of course. So the absolute benefit for chronic kidney disease progression was lower, but it was there. And they had marked cardiovascular progression with less heart failure and less atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And, and we know that those patients, those non albuminuric patients with EGFRs of 55 are at high, high risk of cardiovascular disease. Why not put them on an SGLT2 inhibitor? There, there are clear benefits. So that's why we wrapped them into the same uh, recommendation.
4: But to, to, say, to say that someone with a GFR of,
2: 30, of 50
4: and diabetes doesn't have cardiovascular disease is
2: wrong. Like, how can you say that? That's a good point. There are a lot of subclinical cardiovascular disease. That's why they're at such high risk. Yeah.
1: Well, they would really meet the criteria of a CV outcome trial enrollment based on high CVD risk. And as Ian said, first off, there's clear CVD benefit. And people with diabetes and CKD are more likely to die of a cardiovascular event than progress to kidney failure anyway and then among the living who survive then they have less likelihood of getting kidney failure and secondary or post-hoc analysis depending on the study even with absent albuminuria and at different levels of gfr from normal to low the benefit persists
6: perfect and thanks for correcting me on that matt so the um for that patient that i'm talking about let's say someone with you know no proteinuria and uh, no albuminuria um, even if the sugars are fine just with metformin you should be adding a flozin, is that right yeah we're giving it for
1: organ protection we really need to shift the paradigm that these are not in this context not specifically being given for glucose but the truth is They, A, aren't very good glucose-lowering therapies. The reason that the uptake is high is not about glycemic control, because they're not actually that good at it, but they're really good at affecting the heart and the kidney. And then, of course, the lower the GFR goes, the less glycemic benefit, but the cardiovascular and kidney disease benefits persist for reasons that we don't really understand, but they do. And so we really have to reframe these as, we called it, organ protection, but the two organs that that most clearly are protected are the heart and the
4: kidney. Do you think it might actually be better to put, put these in a different chapter, make a chapter six?
2: We thought about that and, and should the SGLT2 inhibitors be in the glycemic control chapter oh, at all? And it really gets to the question, are, are these drugs glucose-lowering drugs? Are they organ-protecting drugs or are they both? And, and in the end, we, we, I think we settled on both, uh, at least for this population. Organ protection mm-hmm. is the main uh, benefit, but there are, when you're thinking about glucose glycemic treatment, it also falls into that algorithm. So we put it, we kept it in that chapter. So
4: but, I guess yeah. the hard part is like, when are you satisfied and say, all right, got a monase inhibitor, got the metformin going, got the T 2 inhibitor. Should we go for a GLP-1 agent at that point too? Or when do you say enough's enough and say, I'm good with what we got going on right now?
1: First off, let's pause for a moment and celebrate that we have now an emerging menu of therapies. This This is a good problem to have. But now I think, you know, the next generation of studies will be about something that we talked about and that Ian and I are working on is better precision phenotyping to try to identify which drugs for which patients, both on safety as well as therapeutic efficacy, and recognizing too that there are limits to how many medications people can take, both because of cost, complexity, side effects. So I think at some point we won't be treating all these people the same, and we will have ways to identify which patients for which drug at which time, and, and to me, that would be the answer to the question. It's not just adding another um, drug in the queue. It's actually saying, oh, you know, at this stage with this profile, a GLP-1 might be better than X. And maybe it's taking something else off and adding it on. But we, we aren't there yet. But what an exciting time to be able to ask finera, these questions. Well, right, right. <laughs> uh, and, and so...
4: But that's going to really rock the world of nephrology, which in a good way, but it's going to change it. Like, you can't go through clinic and see 10, 15 patients. You're going to have to really take your time. You're going to have to really uh, be thoughtful about it.
1: But the innovation will, will reinvigorate the field, I'm convinced. I mean, look at rheumatology was reinvigorated by the biologics. I think it's quite exciting. And I think to your point, Matt, too, when we look at even ACEs and ARBs, which seem so primitive, mm-hmm you know, the uptake is about 25% in people who have an indication mm. for CKD. Mm. And we have to get involved in dissemination implementation science and unravel this knot. There are probably a number of barriers we could all speculate about, but we need to figure out what those are because it's not enough to do a clinical trial, publish a paper, publish a guideline, and, think, and then just assume it's going to happen because it hasn't. We've had two decades and we are still abysmally low. And in other fields like cardiology, Gosh, a statin use in the cardiology clinic. How did that happen?
4: PPIs. Everyone's on one. I mean, you're right. I, you know, but I think that's where we really, as a field, need to uh, break out of our silo, which I think is happening, and uh, preach the word of nephrology all around, and not you know not just ASR. Now we've got SGLT two inhibitors. We've got you know, you know, aldosterone antagonism is taking on a new light. So. Uh, you know, now we, we're armed with the tools to go out and really make those
0: uh, changes. First of all, the PPI is a, is a straw man argument, right? Because patients come with you with a very specific complaint. They got gastritis, they've got reflux, and you give them a pill and that symptom disappears. So people want to take those medicines because it makes them yeah, feel better. True. I think the statin, the huge success in statin was this no, there was a number. They You could get a blood test. You're still. Your cholesterol was two hundred and forty. You took this pill and it went down to one hundred and twenty, and it was it was very concrete in a way that none of our medications, you know, outside of an A one C change, which these drugs we kind of say aren't so great. At least the S L T not get drilled down. We need to have your. Something else down.
1: The other thing, too, the other elephant in the room is nephrologists make their money on dialysis. And, you know, I'll just be honest with you. Our clinics are a loss leader. And so our healthcare system doesn't care about them very much and they are not resourced very well. True. So like your point, Matt, it's really hard for us to do this care because we have so little support to deliver it. Mm -hmm. Right next Mm -hmm. door is the heart failure clinic, which is incredibly resourced. They have navigators, pharmacists, coordinators, nurses, educators. We
4: have Lasix infusion centers for them. Keep them out of the hospital.
1: And I'm all for it, but let's learn from that. And I think that it's going to have, there will have to be a policy change, because I want to respect the nephrologist, in that I think most people get up every day wanting to do the best they can but they can't stay in business if they lose money in their clinic. And so I think there have to be changes in how we resource and value this care, whatever it is. I am no expert on health policy but I'm not really excited about population health management. It's done exactly zero for nephrology. You know, I think that advancing American kidney health is helpful, but we have to go beyond kidney choices, which is about preparing for failure. It's about preparing for kidney failure. I think that should be plan B. Plan A should be prevent kidney failure, but we've got to resource that, that can, be, can get paid enough to deliver the service. And that's the elephant in the room because my guess is that most people would be happy to do it if they could stay in business doing it.
6: Uh, on that note, uh, Christos uh, Argyropoulos has a great thread on Twitter about the fact that dialysis is going to go down and we should really be looking at the economics closely. But, but leaving that apart, um, you know, I've been trying to say, hey, the flozins are not blood sugar drugs, they're organ protection drugs. And, and don't be scared about using them to my fellow nephrologists. But but maybe I, that's not enough, right? Like, like you said, we are—we should get comfortable treating diabetes. And, and I have not explored, right? I have not touched the other. I'm scared of touching the other. I'll be honest, of touching the other other drugs. Afraid of reducing their sulfonylurea or or metformin or what have you. But but we should, yeah, we should we should be. You're absolutely right. We should be brave and we should embrace those things.
1: Um, but you you know what? Else? nephrologists we do things that are much more complicated difficult and potentially risky and so i know that we can step it up and do this mm-hmm. but you know i hope people will embrace it's fun to learn something new and something that
6: helps people we embrace a a serum sodium of uh, of 100 so so there's a there's a nice figure figure 20 which which shows all the other options uh, the wheel the wheel is really nice about you know patient options and and you know, you know, if they if certain thing is more important, then these drugs would be more important. There's there's uh, guidance guidance about. I,
0: yeah, I I do have a, I do have a question. Metformin gets this rarefied place. It gets the first line as therapy, and I guess we have the UK PDS trial that showed a mortality benefit, or was it just a is that is it a
6: mortality benefit with metformin? Yeah, and more, what was it being it, it, compared to? It was a cardiovascular benefit. It was yeah. a MACE kind of benefit. That's right.
2: Yeah. So UKPDS compared metformin to a, a conservative diet-based approach in a pretty small group of of patients but it found a uh, decrease in MI decrease in total microvascular uh, complications this was in people with type 2 diabetes and less than a year's duration uh, at the entry to the trial um, and so it does work and this is an you know diabetes is an international problem 700 million people with type 2 diabetes or total diabetes expected uh, was that 2045? I can't remember my stats now, uh, Kathy.
1: 476 million last year, 700 million 2045. And the International Diabetes Federation has been doing these projections since 2000. and They're always too low. They have to keep increasing yeah. them. So these are conservative
2: estimates. That's right. So, you know, worldwide, metformin is uh, an inexpensive, cheap and effective way to uh, not only lower glucose, but also prevent diabetes complications over the long term. And UKPDS was a long-term study. And, uh, you know, there have been nice subgroup analyses of the SGLT2 inhibitor trials. Their benefits are, are observed with or without background metformin treatment. But the majority of patients in these trials were treated with metformin uh, background. That's where we have the most data. And it's a logical approach, I think, uh, to, to use both. There are some gray zones. Uh, I see patients in clinic who, for whatever reason, have had type 2 diabetes for many years, and now they're off meds, and their hemoglobin A1c is 5.9%. And I believe it, because their lab glucoses are also 110 milligrams per deciliter. Off of therapy. Uh, And you can ask in those patients, well, do you really need metformin and SGLT2 inhibitor? Should you start one? Should you start both? Uh, that's a gray zone. We don't have a lot of data for those uh, for those patients. And then we have to exercise some, some judgment. But it's never possible for a guideline to fit every individual patient.
6: Yeah, and there's there's a lot of, uh, there are many useful practice points. That's all I'll say about, you know, what to do when you start them and, and uh, how to go about uh, doing stuff. Uh, maybe uh, I can briefly touch on the GFR aspect. Like, uh, just to emphasize, you can start them about a GFR of 30. Uh, but you write it all the way down to dialysis. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and that's based on Credence. Uh, both Credence and DAPA CKD uh, trials used that protocol. It's not been rigorously tested, but since that was what was applied in the trials that worked, that's what I
6: think we should should go with. Uh, and DAPA CKD went um, down to 25, and I'm told MPa is going down to for 20. For initiation. Yeah, so, so yeah. again, this will be off-label, of course, but uh, is that somewhere that you would be comfortable going uh, with time? as more and more data come out. I
2: think the first point to make is that the threshold of 30 was arbitrary to begin with, right? And uh, some people are, are scared, therefore, for starting at 30 or 31 or 32, but you shouldn't be. So even in that range, you should go for it. And the reason um, that we don't have uh, initiate treatment in lower ranges is, is not because of a safety issue like it is for metformin and metabolic acidosis. It's because of an absence of data issue. Uh, and so, if you're on the border, uh, certainly don't don't worry. Now, the the threshold of 30, I hope will go down over time. And DAPA CKD, of course, pushed it down to 25. EMPA kidney, as you said, is going down to 20. So I I think that over time that that threshold for initiation will be reevaluated, and you know that that's a good thing.
1: And on October 2nd, at least in the US, the FDA gave DAPA breakthrough therapy status, which means they're expediting, fast tracking it to uh, a new indication approval. And as a centering point on that, I took a look at the breakthrough therapy designations by the FDA because I knew it was new in nephrology. In fact, it's the first we've ever had. And I think uh, a big part of what drove that was the extraordinarily large benefit on all-cause mortality. As the last report was September 30th of this year, there are 23 breakthrough therapy approvals, 15 or for rare forms of cancers, The other eight are for conditions like porphyria, uh, sickle cell disease, uh, a series of rare conditions that are important But none have anything to do with the kidney and never have, and they have all been for rare diseases. The other interesting thing is there were no other chronic diseases in the past two years that have gotten a breakthrough therapy designation. So nothing for diabetes or hyperglycemia, let's put it that way per se, nothing for risk factors. So uh, for nephrology, this is the first time we've ever had a drug reach breakthrough therapy status. And it's distinguished by uh, being the only one for a major chronic disease that affects millions of people worldwide.
2: Well, it's time to flow, Uh I, I agree. Uh, the evidence is strong. Uh, we need to implement uh, these these drugs to people for whom they have...
0: Uh, Some uh, people would even medicine. call it 1A. Some people <laughs> would call it 1A.
2: Uh, and we need others to implement it, too. We need to guide our primary care colleagues to, uh, to feel mm-hmm. comfortable doing this because that's the only way... Um, that that are gonna get spread into practice sufficiently, And what I hope we see in not too many years is people coming into clinic uh, on an SGLT2 inhibitor along with an ACE or an ARB um, and their metformin as well and asking what's the next therapy uh, that we figured out, whether that's veneranone or other things that are in the pipeline and, and perhaps tailored to a precision phenotype as Kathy suggested.
1: Ian, one other really important thing that's implicit in what you said is remember we know from the CV outcome trials, these drugs also prevent kidney disease. So they prevent kidney disease and among people who have it, they reduce death, cardiovascular events, and kidney failure. That is the real win for patients. And back to the increasing burden of diabetes with 700 million people projected by 2045, we've got to really bend the curve because even if we, dramatically reduce incident rates. With the total number of people with diabetes, this is still an enormous problem, but we now actually have a tool that we can use to begin to work in that direction.
2: Well, now we're uh, out of business, Kathy. We don't have any dialysis patients anymore because they haven't progressed and now the CKD has been prevented altogether. That's a good thing, I suppose.
0: Yeah, from your lips to God's ears, we'd love to see that. Okay, chapter five. Matt, I I heard that this is an epic chapter, very long.
4: It's very important chapter, and I'll tell you, when I say chapter, I say this from the executive summary, okay? And that's what I go for. That's what I, I thought Ian <laughs> spent the most time editing, I hope. and uh, but it, it's still very important. and I think that it probably should have been chapter one uh, if the patient voice had had their way. and and the reason why I say that it's it's about the improving of self-management through education programs. and really, uh, if you can't get that across, then you're really not going to have any success in any therapy that you give. Uh, and they break it down to face-to-face, group-based, or even digital self-management programs. And I really like the fact that they talk about accounting for cultural issues, uh, cognitive impairment, uh, geographical factors. So I think really thinking comprehensively about how you talk to patients and how you try to empower them to take take care of their own life and figure out, you know, what are some strategies, and that might be group uh, therapy to try to talk to other people and what their strategies were, uh, or it might be uh, to engage in a digital platform, which uh, I think they're really emerging right now. Now, the recommendation levels on some of these are, are not quite as high, and I think just as we talked before, it's harder to uh, study these. These are very complex, and there's a lot of different inputs uh, to them, um, but I think, uh, you know, if you want to if you want to get your therapy to take uh, root and be utilized, used, you you have to have this uh, approach. That is the, the the juxta of the of chapter five.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And this is where our patients really were incredibly passionate about uh, emphasizing how they need to be involved in their own care and in health systems. So you nailed it. And and there there is evidence. I, I was actually surprised. This is not an area of research uh, for me. Uh, But there are um, uh, trials that have uh, looked at self-management interventions and shown improvement at least in intermediate outcomes, Uh, and, and that's why we felt comfortable giving a recommendation here. The health systems aspect of it is also very important, and to reach enough patients... Really, there does need to be structure to health systems uh, to promote adequate care.
0: So we did it. We got through uh, the <laughs> guidelines. This was awesome. I really thank you guys for coming. Uh, I'm fired do, up. I'm fired up. We have a we have a section at the end of the podcast where people get to talk about anything that they want to promote. Um, we're gonna we'll we'll do a couple of us so you can get a sense of what it feels like. And if you guys don't have anything. That's fine, but if you want, if you if you want
5: to talk about anything,
0: you got it. Okay, Jenny, what do you got?
5: <laughs> so I think originally we were talking about potentially doing a kidney zoo secretion series, right? Do you have something on the kidney zoo? Yeah. So my favorite part about the kidney. So for those of you who haven't gotten a chance to tune in to that particular session of ASN, it was basically looking through. Uh, animal kidney physiology of different species and how they might actually inform our understanding of novel therapeutic strategies for human kidney disease. And so um, one of the uh, ones that I was uh, really interested in uh, was actually from uh, Jackson Laboratory in Maine, Uh, Ron Corstanji, I think is his name, and he actually was doing RNA sequencing of bear kidneys to try to figure out, you know, before hibernation, after hibernation, what are some of these transcriptional differences that happen. Um, and he ended up stumbling upon some non coding RNA species that could potentially be inter- interesting in the regulation of how bear kidneys would recover function after a very long hibernation. And they have re- since- really
4: bad permissive hypercreatinemia. really bad
5: (laughs) (laughs) and then it goes away Um, and then just even that concept of you know an animal that's not eating or drinking anything obviously they get fat from all the stuff that they've been storing eating uh, in preparation for hibernation but you know just not even just being like asleep for that long like what does that do to your kidneys that whole study had brought me back to one of the my first encounters with nephrology research at university of colorado where i did my residency and i was in a basic science lab of charles edelstein who does both aki and pkd but he has also been a, a basic science collaborator with a transplant nephrologist there who was studying squirrel hibernation and what that means for a cold ischemia for kidney transplant and warm reperfusion so you know, if you have these squirrels that are hibernating in the cold and then you warm up their jumpstart and warm up their kidneys, what? why don't they have bad kidney disease? And I thought that that was such a cool idea and project to look at like these uh, physiologic processes that we don't experience as humans, but just trying to hack that and leverage it to see like whether or not we can uh, use some of those pathways to cure or, you know, form new therapeutic strategies for acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease well i was going
4: to say i like his main collaborator his last name was bear which was pretty cool Um, (laughs) uh, but a a couple of things one is giraffe's mean blood pressure is 220. it's pretty cool Uh, and then there uh, you you could not perform biopsy on a giraffe because the capsule the kidney is like basically kevlar uh, and it can withstand Uh, Blood pressure is 625 millimeters of mercury before it bursts. Uh, And it's because it has this huge neck and it has to withstand the pressure so that the kidney doesn't Explode is kind of how I look at it, but that that was pretty cool. And so that that is the tubular secretion for the giraffe kidney, which I think is fascinating.
2: This is great, guys. I unfortunately have to run; can take no okay, more time. Hey, I, you I, guys I were hate awesome. To this, this, no, this you're spot. good. Uh, Thank you for joining us. This was a awesome. Complete
0: secretion. He's gone. <laughs> <laughs> He's like.